0: Uh, Last week we were in Acts chapter 2 and we talked about that wonderful day, the day of Pentecost and we're actually still in the day of Pentecost uh, um, in this series Um, and so we're continuing, we're staying in Acts chapter 2 today, we'll actually stay in Acts chapter 2 again next week, we're just kind of taking three sections of the chapter. Now today we're going to look more closely at Peter's sermon which, you know, at first glance that may sound kind of strange, a sermon about a sermon, you know, is this like a dream within a dream or you know like an inception sort of thing is this weird like preachers preaching about another preacher's sermon Uh, a lot of the book of acts actually is sermons and speeches and it's luke's way as a good storyteller may do um, to kind of explain what's going on using these speeches and using these sermons and these talks. And so uh, if you imagine you know, reading a, a, a work of fiction or whatever where the author is trying to teach something, there'll be a moment maybe where one of the characters goes into a longer monologue or maybe there's a, you're listening in on a professor give a lecture or whatever it is. And that's the author's way, that's the storyteller's way of letting you know how to uh, really see what's, what's just happened. Well, Luke's kind of doing that here. So there's these events that are happening in Acts, and then there's these sermons, which is Luke's way of saying, now let me tell you what we really think about what's going on. But there's more than just, you know, okay, we need to look at Peter's sermon because sermons and speeches are a big part of the book of Acts, and we're in a series on Acts, so I guess we might as well do this. No, there's more than it, to it than just that. We're looking at Peter's sermon because we're asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to preach Jesus? What does it mean to proclaim Jesus? Christ. Last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit, we said, look, the reason the Holy Spirit has come upon us is He's the power for us to live the way God has called us to live, but He's also the power upon us to, to preach Christ and to proclaim Christ. And so there's, there's some, something about our lives here as followers of Jesus that we understand, we know, look, a part of our mission is to announce Jesus, to preach Jesus. But what does that exactly mean? Uh, Growing up in Malaysia, I was part of one of those youth groups that um, I'm so grateful for because it stretched us in many, many ways. And and one Saturday, we had our youth group on Saturday afternoons in Malaysia. And and, and, um, one Saturday afternoon, we showed up and they said, okay, look, we're not going to have youth group today. Uh, In fact, we're all just going to go out into this area of town and each of you is going to practice sharing the gospel with a stranger. Now, as like a 14 or 15-year-old kid, you're like, okay, well, this could go one of two ways. And, uh, and one of them's really bad, you know, so let's just figure out, this is a bit of an adventure, but let's just figure this out, and remember, this is Malaysia, so there's, there's um, Malays who are Muslims, and you're not allowed to preach to them, so you, can't, you gotta kind of sort of rule that out, and then, then you're left with Hindus and Buddhists, and Hindus and Buddhists don't convert very easily, they're, they're, they're sort of like, look, you've got your thing, we've got ours, and, and in fact, it's very deeply held, it's connected to family, honor, and all of this stuff, so the, the activity that we did as a youth group was not necessarily so much um, so that we could pack the halls of our youth group because I don't think there was like stories of like, yes, we got 100 people saved today. No, it wasn't that kind of a thing, but it definitely was an exercise for us to say, okay, so if you were to share Christ, how do you do it? When you think about our culture today and you think about the people who have the loudest microphones or the biggest platforms and choose to share Christ, in in those arenas, what you often hear is something like this. An athlete comes to the press box, you know, after the game and they're saying, you know, how was your this or that? And he says, okay, well, first of all, I'd just like to thank my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a peculiar phrase. Where did the personal come from? Where did that get added? That's an interesting edge. Okay, all right. And maybe it's okay, but athletes were like, well, okay, hey, at least they're kind of giving glory to God. That's, that's wonderful. You know, that's a good thing. And, and then you, then what really gets kind of creepy, though, is when you're watching like the Grammy Awards or some, some sort of award show, and this, this, you know, artist who's got this extremely violent or explicit lyric song, you know, comes up there to receive his awards. like, man, I just want to thank my Lord, my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you know? And you're like, well, I don't know what kind of a personal Lord he is to you, but I'd, And we've added this phrase, though, personal. So He's my personal Lord and Savior, almost as a way of saying He's my private Lord. You can have your own Lord. I don't know who your Lord is, but for me, Jesus is... Now, the way we're going to look at Peter's sermon this morning is to answer this question, what does it mean to preach Jesus? But it's not just an exercise in training us to go be... Jesus preachers, though you will, but it's to really also to address the question of who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we are following? Because every leadership or management book or whatever will tell you, begin with the end in mind, right? So any, any good public speaker needs to sort of know, well, where am I going? What am I really trying to say? And then once I know what I'm trying to say, this is my, my main point, then I, then I can sort of craft the journey there. You know, what are you really trying to say? And so for Peter, we're going to cheat just a little bit. We're going to skip to the very end of his sermon and say, Peter, what's the main point? Now, don't you wish you could do this with my sermons every week? Just go, just give me the, skip to the end. Press the DVR, you know, fast forward. Acts 2, verse 36. And Peter says, Therefore let all Israel know beyond question that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If you're the kind of person that likes to circle or underline in your Bibles, which I think it's a wonderful thing to do, circle the word Lord and circle the word Christ. Both of those words are huge words. And Peter packs a whole lot of meaning in his sermon just by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified is now, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Language has a way of triggering memories. A certain word, a certain phrase has a way of evoking a whole story, a whole backstory. If I were to say the word to you, if I were to say the president, you might think of President Barack Obama, or you might think of the person you'd like to be the next president, or you might think of the first president, or you might think of the greatest president, or you might think of something totally different. You might be thinking of a corporation. And the new president of such and such a corporation that you just you know, bought stock in or whatever. A word has a way of evoking a whole nother set of ideas. And I think we used this example last week, but it works quite well when you think about, as a, if you're a Broncos fan, if I were to say to you, the drive, what do you think of? You think of John Elway. You think of the Cleveland Browns. You think about... That AFC championship game, some of you are like, I don't know, I have no idea. No, I don't, I don't know, anything. People, it's time to get on the Broncos wagon. <laughs> but when I say the drive, you're, you, you, it should evoke for you all kinds of, oh yes, or if I mean if you're a 49er fan, you say the catch. You're thinking, oh, Joe Montana. Do I, you, 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 there's a whole story that kind of is connected to these phrases. So when Peter says, Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Each of those words triggers a whole set of emotions, a whole set of stories that have been passed down, and a whole set of narratives that have been shared. And let's look at these words one by one. The first one, Lord. So we proclaim that Jesus is both the Lord, and dot, 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 we'll finish this phrase, but we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Let's look at that. Acts 2, verse 14 to 21. Peter stood with the other 11 apostles and he raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem know this, listen carefully to my words, these people aren't drunk as you suspect, after all it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, someone said it's 5 o'clock somewhere, rather this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, in the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy Underline that, the phrase, last days. If you're into underlining, underline last days. Your young men will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Even my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. This is apocalyptic language. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood. Woo! Before the great and spectacular day of the Lord. Underline that phrase, day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Someone uh, asked me this, um, and and Sean, this is a great way of pointing this out because we have a Twitter account here at New Life Downtown and you can, from time to time, if you think of questions, you can just sort of write a, a public reply to at New Life Downtown. And so I think Sean, a couple of weeks ago, said, hey, What does Peter mean when he says the last days? Does he really think the last days have begun? So I said, Sean, just wait one more week. We're going there. So here we are. And it it may happen that you may have a question that will lead us into the text the the following week. So Peter says this phrase, the last days, and then he says the day of the Lord. What, what, What are these phrases? What do those phrases mean? In the Old Testament prophetic books, last days, their hope... Uh, we talked about this on Easter. Their hope was not so much waiting to go from here to there, meaning their idea of hope was not, let's go from earth to heaven. Their idea of hope was when the God of heaven would act, would return and be the king that he is and bring justice among the nations and punish those bad guys and let us alone, uh, let us deliver us from the oppressors and all of this stuff. So in a way, you could say they weren't thinking of hope as going from down here to up there. They were thinking of hope as right now to what's coming. Two ages rather than two spaces. Does that make sense? Okay. And so when the prophets began to talk about this, they began to say there's going to be this one great and terrible day. That's the climactic moment. That's the day when God will be the righteous judge that He is. He's going to win a great victory, He's going to judge all that's wicked. He's going to roar. And the days leading up to that day are the last days. Now, what they thought would happen, though, is that one day would completely end, one age would completely end, while another, and then the next one would begin. But what Peter and all these apostles are realizing that God did instead, and if you're music people, you understand this, instead of putting two tracks side by side, God pulled the crossfade and said, nope, I'm going to make the, these present, this present age kind of begin to fade out but this new one's already begun. It's like listening to two songs, one's fading out and the other's fading up, and you're being asked to listen to the new song that is in the world. Or it's like a person who's come back from the other side of the world, and literally if you go to Asia, you're in the future, because it's 12 hours ahead or 14 hours ahead, and coming back and saying, wow, it's noon right now. I think I'm going to grab some lunch. And everyone around saying, no, it's noon. I mean, it's midnight right now. Go to bed. No, it's less. I'm from the future. (laughs) And that's that's a little bit what what, what these first followers of Jesus felt like. They were saying, look, we've seen it. God's begun to act at last. The last days have begun. But but in a a little twist of events here, this present age is still here. It's still fading out. But a new one is just fading up. There's a new song we're supposed to begin to listen to. And so when Peter quotes Joel, that's what he's drawing on. But back to our original question, the word Lord. The word Lord in the Old Testament is really, if, if you were reading it in a Hebrew, Hebrew manuscript, would really just be the, the, the letters for the holy name, the divine name, Yahweh, Y-H, yod heh vav those four letters. But when the Old Testament gets translated into Greek in the Septuagint, They don't want to translate those letters, and so they translate it with this Greek word, Kyrios, which means Lord. And so if you were reading Joel, in the Greek version of it, you'd be reading it saying, oh, the day of the Lord. And so when you heard Lord, you were thinking about Yahweh, the great God. Now imagine how massive this is for Peter to say that the Jesus whom you've crucified is Lord? You're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is no God but Yahweh. There is no God but Yahweh. There is no God but Yahweh. You can't tell me that this person is synonymous with Yahweh. That's, that's blasphemy. Yeah, I know. That's why the Jewish leaders killed Jesus, because that's quite a thing to say. And, and Peter's, by by saying the punchline of his sermon that Jesus is Lord, he's saying, look, he is the great sovereign one. Not just a good teacher, not just another revolutionary, not just a guy with good ideas about forgiveness and peace and turning the other cheek. This is the sovereign Lord. Wait a minute. The one who will come to judge the earth? Yep. The one who will make the nations bow? That's the one. Jesus is him? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-oh. But there's another resonance that the word Lord has. That word curious was also used by a certain person, the Caesar. Caesar would go by this title. In fact, back when Augustus was, the, was sort of the first of the great Caesars, after he died, people began to say that he is divine. And so, sorry, Julius Caesar, right? divine. And then Augustus, his son, sort of let them carry on that myth because that would, if his dad was God, that would make him the son of God. And that's what he was called. Son of God. And these great Caesars introduced the time of peace, the Pax Romana, and so it wasn't uncommon to to attach the title to them of Prince of Peace. Say, Wait a minute, I thought these were like Jesus titles. They were Caesar titles first. And in fact, the news of his birth was announced by this word, Gospel. So if you asked a Roman of the day, what's the Gospel, what's the good news? They would say, that Caesar is Lord. Now you see what the followers of Jesus are doing they've ripped these titles away from Caesar and they're saying, no, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now think about how radical that is. Imagine you woke up tomorrow morning and there was a prisoner on death row who had just been executed today and tomorrow you wake up and you say, I'm here to tell you that that prisoner on death row that we just executed last night, he's the true and rightful president of the United States. Dude, you're crazy, man. And that's just madness. I'm telling you, he is the rightful commander-in-chief of the U.S. forces, the the prisoner that was executed on death row. You begin to get a feeling of how absurd these claims are starting to sound. Jesus is the real Lord. But not only does it sound absurd, but it's actually very politically subversive. And here's where it gets uncomfortable, because... We want Jesus to be a personal Lord because that's not very offensive. He can be your personal Lord while you follow this ruler or this system or while you um, serve greed or money or any other Lord because Jesus is just a personal Lord. He's a pocket Jesus that you just kind of slip in here. He's my personal Lord. But Peter wasn't saying that Jesus is a personal Lord. Peter's saying Jesus is the Lord of all the sovereign, the one who is Yahweh and the true ruler of even this world. See, it's one thing to say Jesus is Lord like He's Yahweh. It's another thing to say He's the true ruler of this world. Because sometimes as Christians, it's comfortable to say Jesus is God, He's the Son of God, we worship Him, He's the King of Heaven. But it's quite a different thing, isn't it, to insist on the fact that Jesus is the true ruler of this world. Think about how unsettling that is this fall during political season. Think about how uncomfortable it is to say look we, we can do your thing and campaign for whoever and whatever you but at the end of the day there's only one rightful king of all the nations of the world. Right now and his name is Jesus. And ultimately allegiance to him means He's the only absolute Lord. This is quite a statement that Peter's beginning to make. Then he goes on and he says, sorry, it's a little bit like I was thinking someone, I can't remember where I was. We were listening to, watching something. It was some, maybe a ceremony in England or maybe it was a trip over there. And the song came on, the da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da. And someone goes, man, that's weird. Why are they playing my country tis of thee at this British thing? And I said, you don't know, do you? He said, no, I don't. It's actually God Saved the Queen. What? It's a British song for the monarch that Americans changed in the 1800s to be my country, tis of thee, sweet, you know. And look, this is what we do, man. We take cricket and make it baseball. We take rugby and make it football. We, did, we make it better. And this is a little bit like Peter and the first followers of Jesus saying, His name is Caesar? His name is Lord? No, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. Ripping a page out from their playbook and saying it applies to Jesus. But he also says that Jesus is the Messiah. So We proclaim Jesus is both Lord and the Messiah. I've chosen to use this word Messiah instead of Christ because sometimes as Christians, you hear the word Christ all the time, Jesus Christ, as if it were his last name. You know, his parents were Joseph and Mary Christ, you know. They just live down the street from the, uh, the... But Christ is a title. It means the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited one, the promised one, the hoped-for one. And so he goes through this whole thing here in Acts 2, verse 20 through two to 35. And let me just, for the sake of time, kind of summarize his argument. He starts to quote David. And there's this verse in the psalm here, which was our Old Testament reading, Psalm Uh, Acts 2 verse 27 he says because you won't abandon me to the grave nor permit nor permit your holy one to experience decay and then Peter goes on in verse 29 says brothers and sisters I can speak confidently about the patriarch David he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this very day this is Peter saying David wasn't talking about himself because God did let him see the grave and so then he goes on, he says, but because David was a prophet, he knew that God had promised him a solemn pledge to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Look, some rainy Saturday, some snowy week, you ought to sit down and just read through some of even the short prophet books. Read through Amos, and Micah, and Nahum. Or if you're up for it, read through the first half of Isaiah, Isaiah 1 through 39. Then read the, sec- the middle section, 40 to 55. Then read the third section, 56 to 66. And what you'll discover is there's this theme in the prophet books. There's there's a few themes. But one of the central themes is this, that in spite of all the discipline and punishment and judgment that God is going to let his people go through, he will not forget his promise to David. Now what's his promise to David? That David would always have a descendant to rule. Now for the Jews, this was a literal king, that one day there's going to be a king, the house of David will return, the Lord will rebuild the house of David. And Peter's saying, do you see it? Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the long-awaited ruler. Jesus is the rightful king who will deliver. If Messiah is the one who will save and who will deliver, then Jesus is the one who will save and deliver. But by calling Jesus Messiah, Peter's also saying this, I told you, God doesn't forget His promise. I told you, God doesn't scrap His plans. I told you God doesn't abandon his people. I told you God doesn't try one thing, and if it doesn't work, move on to something different. See, this is where we sometimes go off and we we get a little squirrely when we talk about God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament. We sort of imagine that God sort of tried this Israel thing and that didn't work, and he says, okay, well, I'm going to go over here. What what we really see is God saying, I knew Israel was going to be unfaithful, but from the line of David will come my own son. And by Jesus being the Messiah, God simultaneously was faithful to His promise to use David's line and saved all the people of the world with the only one who could be perfect and faithful. That's genius! That's why Paul says the Gospel is the wisdom of God. Only God could do this sort of a thing. And so Peter's saying, Jesus is not only the sovereign one, but Jesus is the saving one. He's the saving one. The very embodiment of God's faithfulness. The very embodiment of the, of the fact that God does not forget His promises. You think about when Peter first knew this. Remember the gospel reading we just heard this morning? Peter knew this while during Jesus' ministry. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the one. And Jesus says, well done. You didn't learn that in synagogue. That's a revelation moment and then, so, then a Friday night happened and Peter all of a sudden on a dark and lonely Friday night after he's just seen the saving one crucified on a cross is too heartbroken or sad or disillusioned or disappointed to admit to a servant girl that Jesus really is the Messiah think about that have you ever had moments where you were on the peaks of faith and you're like, I know it, I knew it, God's faithful, this is God's faithfulness, I knew it. And then all of a sudden there's a Good Friday moment where you're like, "Whoa, what, what? You feel this collapse, the bottom dropped out. and You say, well, I thought, I, I, I thought, I, I mean, I. And here's Peter staying on the journey coming to this place where now he says, listen guys, this Jesus is the Messiah. He is it. it. We get in trouble when we try to say, well this is how I know and this is how I can prove. and this is, We get in trouble when we, we run down those roads. But somewhere, by God's grace, we come to this place over and over again where we say, who is Jesus? The Lord and the Messiah. The sovereign one and the saving one. He is. And when the men who are listening, the people who are there, hear this, Acts 2 verse 37, when the crowd heard this, they were deeply troubled. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? I mean, this is kind of like a, Uh-oh. This, this, is, this, is, this, is, really, this is really true. And this is why I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm saying to you, that if our only message when we preach Christ is that he's my personal Lord, that's not confrontational. Am I telling you to be more confrontational? I'm just telling you that when you really speak of Jesus as who Jesus claimed he, he is, it bring, it, it, you sort of run into this crisis moment. And this crowd is sitting, because if you say, well, look, he's my personal Lord. so Well, that's cute. Well, this is my personal religion. But if you're saying, look, I, I, I'm not saying this like as a, I can prove or you can bet. or I, you know, I'm just saying, we are proclaiming Jesus as the sovereign Lord over all and the only saving one. You're going to run into either people who say, well, forget that, or say, well, what do we, what do, we do with this? Faced with this moment, what do we do? It's kind of like that moment, you know, in planes, trains, and automobiles where he's driving down the freeway and all of a sudden this guy's like you're going the wrong way And he's like what hi everything's fine no no you're going the wrong way and then he looks and there's the lights of the semi oh i'm going the wrong way that's what peter's sermon is like like the lights of a semi truck saying the lord and the sovereign and this is a real nice cute um real sugary way to say it isn't it the Jesus whom you crucified. <laughs> oh, Peter, just so subtle. Just so good. At, you know, just sugarcoating it. I'm the guilty one? And so they say, well, what do we do? And his response to them is sort of this classic thing now. through and Peter replied, change your hearts and lives, each one of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, that's us, as many as the Lord our God invites, and with many other words he testified to them and encouraged them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. There's something about our response to this awakening. Jesus really is this. Now what? It begins with the word repent. It begins with this very simple word, repent. But even though it's a simple word, we've already talked about how language carries with it so much baggage sometimes that you hear the word repent or you look at the word repent and you think, and maybe you have memories of, of harsh Sunday school teachers or whatever you know, who who's who use that word to say, now you better repent. And it was a way of kind of making you just shrivel and, and feel worthless. Or, or maybe the word repent was used as a way of manipulating you, or certainly people have done that. But the word repent is really a beautiful word. It's meant to be an amazing Word because it means we've come to the end of ourselves. The Bible, in both the Old and New Testament, uses three different words for this English word repent. One of the words in the Old Testament carries with it the sense of remorse or regret. Certainly we've experienced that. I I wish I'd not done. Another one of the words has to do with the idea of, of beginning to change and live differently. This word here, the, 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 the one New Testament word is kind of a change your way of thinking, change your mind, turn around. Think about maybe putting all of those together. The to repent is to say, God, I've wow. That's I can't do this. This isn't it, is it? I've really made a mess of things. But then he says, and receive this gift of salvation, of the Holy Spirit, of forgiveness. Receive, receive, receive. One of the reasons I think we talk about Jesus as personal Lord and Savior is because we've maybe, I I, I suggest, we've sort of confused the way of thinking about repentance versus salvation. Wesley, John Wesley, was great at reminding us that you needed some act of sort of a personal conversion, a, a... a, a faith moment, a repentance and faith moment. It's got to be personal. But salvation is communal, not personal or private. Salvation's on a bigger scale. God is saving a people, not a collection of individuals. Now think about how that changes the way you think about church or even this quote unquote religion called Christianity. God is saving a people, not a collection of individuals. What does that do to even our understanding of repentance and salvation? Maybe it's a little bit like this, another sports analogy for you, okay? What if a player says, you know what, I see the Denver Broncos got Peyton Manning, they're most assuredly going to win the Super Bowl this year, praise the Lord. (laughs) I want in, I want to be part of this team because I want a ring. Says, I want a ring, I want the trophy, I want to say that I'm a Super Bowl champ. And John Elway, the VP, says, okay, that's great. Um, we're going to sign you then to be on the kickoff return team and you're just going to block on kickoffs, you know. Said, so, "No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. No, I I I don't want to I don't want to be on the team. I just want to win the Super Bowl." But it doesn't work. I I don't really want to be on the team. I just want to I just want the ring. Right, but you can't get the ring if you're not on the team. What? Well, I, I just want like a you and me kind of relationship. And maybe if it's just you and me, you can give me the ring when you guys win it in February next year. So It doesn't work that way. See, maybe repentance is like saying, I'm signing up, me. I'm like a player saying, I'm in, I'm on the team. And salvation being this thing that God is forming and saying, good, well, we're all in it. And I do win, by the way. And so you all get to have the ring. But God is saving a people. Now, there's something broken about that metaphor. I know that. So don't uh, start tweeting that I'm a heretic. But you'll see in the book of Acts when people start to get saved, it's together. You and your household will be saved. There's this stuff God is forming together. So there is no personal Lord and Savior. There is personal faith and repentance. And then you join a whole new world called salvation. A people of God that He's forming. Repentance and receiving. One more maybe place where we trip up. Is repentance the thing that makes God forgive us? Is repentance the thing that, that, that uh, makes God say, all right, fine. I mean, is repentance kind of groveling and begging and then God finally says, okay, okay, you can have a quarter for another can, piece of candy. Is that repentance? Repentance is kind of, just, oh God, please, 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 please forgive me. Fine. Is that it? Or does God offer forgiveness even while we were yet sinners. Does God come and say, look, here's my yes to you. Here's my forgiveness to you. And repentance is the way that you begin to receive it and say, all right, well, thank you. Have you ever tried to like, you know, pay for a meal and you're out with a bunch of friends or give someone a gift and they just won't take it? And you're like trying to find ways to like shove it in the pockets and you know, Or my favorite is like when a group of friends are at dinner and someone says, oh, I'll get the check. And all of a sudden, the other man kind of gets alligator arms. You know, he's like, oh, the check? You know, like, oh, oh, you got it. Okay, you know, I can't reach it. You're like, oh, let let me get that. Oh, you got it? Okay, you know. It's it's, it's very difficult to foist the gift upon someone else. It's just, it's kind of weird, you know. I'm going to make you take this. In Christ Jesus, God freely offers us This gift of forgiveness, this gift of salvation, this gift of his spirit, which we've talked about the last few weeks. Repentance is the way that we say, All right, I receive it. It's like an embrace. You try to hug someone, you go in for the hug, and they're like, Stick out their hand, you know? (laughs) You try to hug them anyway, you know? It's just kind of awkward. It's hard to sort of impose that. Maybe it's a bit like a father comes home from work, and puts stuff down, and gets down on his knees. His arms are open, and his kids come running, giving this huge hug. I live that moment almost every day. I know that once I get from that laundry room door, "Daddy," and I'm down. I'm on my knees, my arms are open, the kids come running for us. Maybe repentance is us saying, Father, thank you that your arms are open. Thank you that in Jesus you came down on one knee. Your arms spread wide. I'm running. Repentance is just me running to say, all right. Grabbing onto your leg, saying I love you too. Glad to be home. This is a beautiful word. There's a funky teaching that kind of is in certain parts of the body of Christ that sort of says you don't ever have to repent. You don't ever have to confess your sins. You did it once. That's it. You're set. That seems silly to me. That's a little bit like a newborn, saying to a newborn, okay, Take your first breath. Remember, their first breath out. Actually, the exhale is the first thing, right? You wait for the cry, the, and then, okay, breathing, and then say, okay, you're good. Don't do any of that. Don't do that anymore. That's not it at all. You Come to Christ with this big exhale of repentance, inhaling the Spirit, and then that's how you live. Every moment of every day, God, I confess. God, I receive your grace. God, I repent. God, I receive. God, I repent. God, I receive. And every day you live this new life that way. So repentance and receiving is not a, yeah, yeah, I did that once. It's an everyday thing of like, this is still how I live. I still live dependent on the grace of God. I still live dependent on the Spirit of God. I still, that's why right now, in just a moment, we're going to come to the table of the Lord. Because the response to the Word of God being proclaimed that Jesus is both Lord and Christ shouldn't be, well, that's nice. That's cute. That was a lovely little chat, wasn't it? To say, no, well, well, what, well, what do I do? Confess your other allegiances. Confess that the other lords in your life of greed or whatever it may be, to say, God, I repent. And this is how we live.